Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the opportunity to read your word. We pray as we look at Jacob and we consider Dinah and what happens to Jacob's daughter. Help us to understand your sovereignty in this situation. Help us to understand your flow and your desire to bring justice to the world. And we pray, Father, you'll give us great patience as we consider your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. What should God do about evil? How would you respond to wickedness? The past month, a father in America was arrested for protesting at a school board meeting. What was his crime? This parent was protesting the school board's cover-up of the rape of his daughter. The school board lied to the parents and said that no incidents of a rape had occurred at the school. Worse still, the boy that had raped his daughter had done it before. But they arrested the man because, or they arrested his father, because this board was trying to hide this fact from the public. Now, most people are rightfully outraged to hear about a girl being raped. But what was really evil about this case was the official... Yes. Why? Yeah, but that was. Okay, I'll go change it slightly. Cause I reckon, like, he, he wasn't arrested because they were trying to cover it up, even if they were trying to cover they it up. They were trying to cover it up. But that's not why he was arrested. He was arrested because he was protesting at the thing. Okay, I'll put so, it that way. So the charges that were laid against him weren't, the board is trying to cover it up and you're exposing him, the charges were, you're protesting at our thing. Okay, I'll say. Uh, highly unlikely to be a problem, mate, but, but it's going on the internet, so... Board, they arrested the man. He was, he was arrested... Because he was protesting. Of, he was arrested because of his protest. I think it still makes a point. Yeah. That was, yeah. But, but unless let's not get, let's not get there. Unless it's proven a court of law, it just makes it really dangerous for you. Okay, let's do it again. Yep. Yeah, no, 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 I'll do that. What do you think God should do about evil? How should he respond to, oh, sorry. Oh, now I've got, I've lost my train of thought. Stop. No, no, no. I'll get it out. What should God do about evil? How should he respond to human wickedness? This past month, a father in America was arrested for protesting at a school board meeting. His crime? Protesting the school board's uh, reluctance to reveal the rape of his daughter. The school board had told the parents that there were no incidents of rape in the school. Worse still, the boy that raped his daughter had done it before. 
but they arrested the man because of his protest at the school board. Now, most people are rightfully outraged to hear about a girl being raped. But what was really evil was the way that the board had treated this man for what seemed to be political reasons. What should happen to people like that? The boy has now been charged, but should anything happen to authorities that act corruptly or wickedly in the face of evil, in the pursuit of some political agenda, of which we we can't tell? How should we respond to evil like this? Now, that is a hard way to open a talk. And the truth is, today's talk, it is not going to be a very nice talk. Today's talk deals with a very tough subject matter. It deals with a very emotional topic for many. For some people, it will cut close to the bone. That is, we're going to be dealing with the rape of Jacob's daughter, Dinah. For some people, this will bring back painful memories. The Bible is not anything but real as it deals with humanity. The Bible does not shy away from the realities of man's sin, and unfortunately, this is very much a part of man's sinfulness. And if this hits home for you, can I please encourage you, please reach out and speak to somebody. So going into the passage, over the past few weeks, we have been following Jacob's journey. And this week, we basically draw to the end of Jacob's account. We've a close with Jacob back in the land. And I, I know Jacob's story will continue a little bit from here, but the focus moves in Genesis from Jacob to Joseph. But in this close this week, we see Jacob's return into the land is not the happy ending. Jacob has been away for 20 years, and as you can see from the map that David will put up, Jacob's return to the Promised Land. He crosses over the Jordan River and settles in the land of Shechem, just across from the Jacob uh, Jacob River or Jackbob Jackbob. But why did I do that? Why do I do that, Dave? Doesn't matter. I'm gonna have to do it again. Okay. Just going to be context. Over the past few weeks, we've been following Jacob's journey. This week, we basically draw to the end of Jacob's account to a close with Jacob back in the land. I know Jacob will be in the story from here on, but in terms of the focus in Genesis, we'll move from Jacob to, jo- to Joseph. In this close, we'll see Jacob's return is not the very happy ending. Jacob has been away from Uh, For 20 years, and as you will see on the map that Dave will show you, that will come up on your screen, Jacob returns to the Promised Land and crosses over the Jordan River and settles near the town of Shechem. And we read this in Genesis 33. After Jacob came from Paddan Aram, he arrived safely at Shechem in the land of Canaan and captured and camped in front of the city. He purchased a section of field where he had pitched his tent from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, for a hundred geshtiahs. 
And he set up an altar there and called it God, the God of Israel. Now, if you look at the map, Jacob settles at the first settlement he comes to in the land. And as you see, Shechem is pretty much opposite the Jacob, Jabbok River on the side of the Jordan, on the other side of the Jordan River. It appears all is well with Jacob and his family. But what we'll find is that Jacob's return becomes a right royal mess. We read this in verse 1 of 34 of chapter 34. Dinah, Leah's daughter, whom she bore to Jacob, went out to see some of the young women of the area. When Shechem, son of Hamor the Hivite, a prince of the region, saw her, he took her and raped her. Dinah, being a young girl, is interested in the women of the land and probably because she had 12 brothers, she goes out and sees the other women that live in the area. But as she goes into a land that is foreign to her, she's captured and raped by a prince of the land, a man named Shechem. After doing this vile deed, Shechem then becomes infatuated with her. And so he speaks to his father, Hamor, to organise for him to marry her. Hamor in turn goes to Jacob to purchase Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, for his son. And as we are about to see, nobody in this story will cover themselves in honour over this event. Everybody either ignores what has happened or lies about their intentions to achieve their goals, the first being Jacob and Hamor. Hamor goes to speak to Jacob about obtaining the girl for his son. And as he does so, he does so whilst ignoring the crime his son has committed. Jacob, on the other hand, he remains silent. He never says a word to Hamor about what he has done. Jacob and Hamor practice one of man's most common responses to evil. Ignore it. Jacob, instead of standing up for his daughter as he should, and demanding justice from the crime, he remains silent. He's willing to sweep it under the carpet. He has a deal with Hamor in terms of purchasing land from him. No need to upset the apple cart. They have peace. They have land. They have a deal. Jacob's sons, the brothers of Dinah, are not so easily manipulated. When they hear about what has been done, they are outraged, and rightly so. In speaking with Hamor, they connive a plan to take their revenge. They deal deceptively and say that if the men of the land will be circumcised, they will agree to Dinah's marriage to Shechem. Hamor leaves thinking, well, all is well, and now plants the seed of an idea in the minds of the city's men. He says, these men are peaceful, and he's talking to the Shechemites. They said, let them live in our land and move about in it, for indeed the region is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as our wives and give our daughters to them. But the men will agree to live with us and be one people only on this condition if all our men are circumcised as they are. Won't their livestock, their possessions and all their animals become ours? Only let us agree with them and they will live with us. And all the able-bodied men listened to Hamor and his son Shechem and all the able-bodied men were circumcised. On the third day, when the men were recovering from their circumcision, Levi and Simeon attacked the city and put the men to death. How did they do this? That is... 
and the exact number of men, we're not given those details. The point is that Levi and Simeon hatched a plan and executed it. What they did is evil. They abused the covenant sign God had given them to make a false promise of peace. And they used the city's incapacitated state to kill the men of the city. Now, before we go and think that these men are totally innocent, it is made clear that that is not the case either, for they are driven by their own greed as they see an opportunity to take Jacob's wealth and as their own through marriage. We see this in the line. Won't their livestock, their possessions and all their animals become ours? But further to that, after Levi and Simeon's slaughter takes place, we read this little piece of information in verse 26. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with their swords, took Dinah from Shechem's house and went away. Hamor and Shechem have not been negotiating in good faith this whole time for they have held Dinah captive in their city. The men of the city in their greed have overlooked Shechem's vile deed and they have done it in the hope, in the evil hope of gaining profit for themselves. There is only one explicit comment condemning any actions and that concerns Shechem's behaviour when we read these words to the effect, a thing such as this should not be done in Israel. So the rape is condemned and explicitly condemned, but nothing else. But there is no one who is acting righteously. There is no one who has done the right thing. Did the men of the city deserve to die for what had happened? No. Shechem certainly did, possibly Hamor in trying to cover up what his son had done. But the men of the city don't deserve dead. The loss of their property, maybe, but not death. Jacob's silence is not much better than Hamor ignoring his son's weakness. We get a clue of what's motivating Jacob when he rebukes Levi and Simeon. You've brought trouble on me, he says, making me odious to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and Perit. Pezzarites, we are few in number. If they unite against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. Fear appears to drive Jacob. He has just come back into the land and settles across from the first ahead of inhabitants he encounters. They end up dealing wickedly with his family. And like so many situations before, Jacob feels threatened and weak. And instead of calling out Hamor and demanding justice for his daughter, his silence says that he'll accept peace and a little piece of the land at the price of his daughter. And the sons pick this up. They say to Jacob, but they answered, should we have treated our sister like a prostitute? It is a rebuke and it is a right rebuke. Jacob was offering up his daughter their sister, as a price for a piece of the share of the land. This account here is a true picture of human wickedness. You cannot look at Genesis 34 and not see the full gambit of human 
wickedness and failure, rape and sexual immorality, deceit, neglect, greed. The brothers are scoffing at God through their use of the circumcision. They never had in mind to bring the Shechemites into the covenant. There is not one man, not one, throughout this account that acts rightly. Everybody is driven by their own agenda. And a great deal of deception goes on by just about everyone. And the only person who is truly innocent in this whole affair is Dinah, who almost becomes a byproduct to the account. Her treatment is despicable as all go about seeking to achieve their personal goals. And in the wickedness of everyone, you see the two basic ways man deals with sin. The first is to downplay or cover up the evil. We see this with Hamor and Shechem and, to a lesser extent, Jacob. They tried to negotiate their way out of the problem by ignoring the offence was ever wrong, seeing the evil of the cover-up here. It's so obvious what they're doing is just wrong. It is evil. But there is a second reaction, and it's almost the opposite. That is the reaction of Levi and Simeon, who overreact in anger. In the process, they cause more problems than they solve. They admit their failure when speaking to their father. They acknowledge it was only Shechem who committed the crime. Shouldn't he only pay for the sin? So why did they kill a whole town? The men of the city were not responsible. The brothers in their anger have acted quite evilly and deceptively. They have not enacted justice, but calculated brutality that has put the whole family in danger. In reality, the whole thing is just a mess. And it shows the true nature of human wickedness. In man's desire to fulfil his wishes, he often does great evil. Even though millennia have passed since this crime, humanity's propensity for wickedness continues unabated. In the past couple of weeks, I can tell you a great deal of evil that has come out of the news. There was an American woman being raped on a suburban train in Philadelphia for 20 minutes. As this rape was happening, apparently people took out their phones and recorded it. They did not stop it, they recorded it. Now, I don't know the makeup of the crowd, I don't know what was happening, but it did happen. That is evil. In this month's issue of the Southern Cross, on the last page of the issue, they carry a story about the prevalence of internet child pornography. Apparently, according to the article, the sexual abuse of minors being carried out online is far larger than anyone realises. And you can be sure it's being carried out against the most defenceless children of the world. The amount of sexual sin I have seen just the last month would make your skin crawl. I could raise up many failures of churches and schools, both public and private in the last decade, and it's sickening. But here is the point. It is easy to point at the evil people of the world and condemn them. And may they get justice in this life for what they have done. But most won't. And even if they did, the sad truth is there will be just another wicked person around the corner doing equally perverse and evil things. Each of them will 
justify their evil. They will each tell you that they are a victim, that it was not their fault, that they were just made that way because of genetics or the environment or bad parenting. And as you would listen to them, you would condemn them and think, well, I'll never act that way. And I'm sure most of you never will do these types of crimes. But what have you done? Are any of us completely innocent, even in terms of our own sexuality and sexual behaviour? How many of us have carried out indiscretions in our past that we are not proud of? As a staff team, we've been listening to William Taylor from the UK to help us think through these talks. If you listen to him, you'll hear echoes of this series littered throughout the talks. And as I listened to him about this passage, he brought up the rise of ISIS and he talked about the conviction of Ralph Harris And William Taylor asks this question, is it just me or does it seem the world is getting worse? And as I listened to his talk, which was from 2014, I felt, wow, I wouldn't mind the good old days of 2014. Things seemed so much better then. But his point reminded me of this truth. Every age is evil. Genesis 34 points us to what Paul says in Romans 3. What then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have previously charged that both Jews and Gentiles are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become useless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. Pretty damning. We might delude ourselves into thinking, well, we're okay because we don't do the acts of these men. But the truth is, we all deserve the judgment of God. And it's easy to excuse ourselves when we don't do these types of evil acts. But are we really innocent? Do you really think you are innocent? Do any of us even keep our own standards of behaviour? How honest are you being with yourself right now? I told you this was not going to be a nice talk. And if it were left like this, then we would be in real trouble. And so we come to God's royal response to man's weakness. He says to Jacob, get up, go to Bethel and settle there. Build an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. You might be sitting there thinking, well, that's not a response. But let me assure you, it is. The reason we might struggle with this is because of a right attitude we all have. We all want justice. When we see evil like this, we want someone to do something about it. And that is right. We should want that. But what we often forget is that God's justice is not like our justice. 
God's justice is, is perfect and impartial. God is not going to deal with the person over there without dealing with the person right here. And that is why God's response to evil is to call Jacob out of the situation. This time he's not calling him to leave the land. God calls him back to Bethel, back to the house of God, back to the place where Jacob first fled when he was fleeing from Esau and his family. And this reminds Jacob and us of God's promises to him back in Genesis 28. He said, God says, I am Yahweh, the God of your father, Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I'll give you and your offspring the land that you are now sleeping on. Your offspring will be like the dust of the earth and you'll spread out towards the east, the west, the north, and the south. All the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. Look, I am with you and will watch you wherever you go. I'll bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done all that I have promised. Jacob is frightened. He's thinking, and certainly the text gives some indication that he's right to think this, that the people around him have heard what has happened at Shechem and they are out to get him. Jacob is a rich man in a foreign land. He's a juicy target. It is in Jacob's fear that God calls him to Bethel to remember his promises. Here Jacob remembers God's promises and places his faith in God's ability to deliver on them. Jacob responds in faith by going to Bethel and here God restates his promises to Jacob. God appeared to Jacob after he turned from Padan Aram and he blessed him. God said to him, your name is Jacob. You will no longer be named Jacob but your name will be Israel. So he named him Israel. God also said to him, I am the God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation indeed, an assembly of nations will come for you and kings will descend from you. I will give to you the land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac and I'll give the land to your future descendants. The promise to Jacob follows God's promise to Abraham in chapter 12 and then Isaac in chapter 26. But God changes the promise in one regard from his previous promises. He says to Jacob, and kings will come from you. God builds upon his previous promises. And again, you may be thinking, wait a second. God's response to Jacob's wickedness and evil is to promise more. God doesn't overlook the evil Jacob family. Instead, he calls them out of the situation. He wants to call a people for his own that will be different from those around him. God's response recommits himself to his long-term plan of saving a people for himself. God wants a new people, a royal people, as opposed to Shechem who has been this prince of the land and committed this evil, He wants a righteous nation, a royal people for his own. We read in 1 Peter, So honour will come to you who believe, but for the unbelieving, the stone the builders rejected, this has become the cornerstone and a stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over. They stumble because they disobey the word. They were destined for this. But you are a chosen race, 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. God's long-term goal was to take her people who were in rebellion and to bring them out to be his own special people. There's nothing in Jacob's family that makes them worthy of this honour from God. But God is nothing if not patient. He's not neglecting Jacob and his family's evil. He's just going to deal with it in his own way, in his own time. He is going to deal with it through the blood of Jesus where his mercy and his justice meet. Our problem as we look at events like this is our impatience. We want God to step in and stop events right now, but he won't. He can't without bringing justice to all people everywhere. God's justice is not selective. He can't say, well, I'll overlook this one, but you are going to pay. When God brings justice to the world, it will be complete and it will be for everyone. That is why when we look at God's response and his commitment to his long-term plan to call a people for himself, we should be patient as he is patient. God is not calling a righteous people. God calls a group of unrighteous sinners to become his holy nation, to become a royal priesthood. As we look at Jacob's unrighteousness, it should give us hope and praise and thankfulness to our God because we are all like Jacob, sinners needing a saviour. I'm always fascinated by how Christians respond to atheists online. One of the things I often see Christians say is that going to church shows and makes you a good person. I always think, don't know what church you're going to. The atheists respond that going to church doesn't make you a good person. And the Christians will then come back and say things like, well, yes, it does. The atheists are right. Instead, I often respond with these words. It's not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Knowing our own sinfulness and seeing God's patience calls for us to be patient in turn as we await God to bring justice upon the earth. For we are all sinners needing a saviour and God is just and God is going to bring about a new holy people, a holy nation for himself. We live in an evil world. It will remain that way until Jesus returns. For all Jacob did wrong, and he did a lot wrong, he did one thing right. He heeded the call of God and placed his faith in his promises. As we look at a passage like this, we can look at it in two ways. We can think, wow, the patriarchs were bad. Why would God choose such a wretched and wicked people to bring about his purposes? Or we could look at this passage and think, Wow, God chose and used such flawed and wicked men to bring about his purposes. There is hope for me. The way we look at a passage like this says a lot 
about the way we see ourselves. God will bring justice to this earth. He has set his king upon the throne. So how do we respond? As sinners, it's easy to point the finger at others, but it's not so easy to admit our faults and our failures. It is only when we see these that we admit our need for forgiveness found in Christ, that we, like Jacob, set our hope on the promises of God and then pray patiently, live and wait for his praise and his glory. Amen. Done. Done, done. I'll send you... Yeah, that's the kind of thing. Trigger warning. Yeah, it is a trigger warning. Um.